Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, January the 11th, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, Sioux City District receives 23 applications for superintendent position, and this story was written by reporter Caitlin Yamada. There were 23 applicants for the Sioux City Community School District's superintendent position. Of these 23 applicants, the school board has decided to move forward with interviewing five individuals and will announce the two finalists within the month. School Board President Dan Greenwell announced the number during the regular school board meeting on Monday night, and the first round of interviews will take place this week, he said. Once the two finalists are chosen and announced, community and staff interviews will take place the week of January the 23rd. Originally, the finalist announcement was expected to take place January the 18th, but Greenwell said it was moved back due to scheduling conflicts. A new timeline will soon be posted on the school district's website. The superintendent application officially opened in October of 2020, or actually on on October 20th, and closed on December the 12th. The board met on January the 5th to discuss the applicants and decide who to interview. The firm GR Recruiting reviewed the applications received and identified nine who they believe fit superintendent traits identified by the community, and after review, the board narrowed it down to five that they would like to talk to. The superintendent search process officially began in September with the help of the superintendent recruiting firm of GR Recruiting. Multiple opportunities were finished in October, including in-person meetings and a virtual survey to learn what the community wanted in a new school superintendent. And the results of that survey showed that Sioux City residents want a superintendent who values ethics and integrity, leads by example through honesty, is an effective communicator, and is accountable for his or her actions. The superintendent traits identified were used to create a profile of the desired candidates for the position. Dick Christie of GR Recruiting said, well, it could also be used to guide interview questions for potential candidates entry plans for the chosen candidate, and guidance for the current interim superintendent and new superintendent goals. Interim Superintendent Rod Earlywine, who started the new job on July 1st of 2022, was selected as interim in April, after former Superintendent Paul Gossman was selected as the new superintendent of Lincoln Public Schools. Early Wine resigned as the superintendent of the Sergeant Bluff Luton Community School District in February of 2022, where he had spent 27 years with that district. And so again, at the uh, recent school board meeting held this past Monday, there were 23 applicants for the position of superintendent of Sioux City Community School District. The uh, board chose two finalists, and community and staff uh, interviews will take place 
on the week of January 23rd. Headline for this next story, Sioux City Virtual School Reduced to Core High School Courses. And this story was written by reporter Caitlin Yamada. After two years of operation, Sioux City's virtual school is being gutted next year. The Virtual Institute for Brighter Education, or the VIBE community, VIBE Academy, will be reduced to high school only in the 23-24 school year and will no longer be a standalone school. Instead, it will be part of what's called the Career Academy. The VIBE Academy, which had been strongly advocated for by former Superintendent Paul Gossman, came into existence less than two years ago to allow students to attend school without being in the school building. The Academy moved into a recently renovated $1.3 million space just a few weeks ago, but has been beset by falling enrollment. Another change merging the alternative school students into the virtual program is also coming, and the changes are expected to save the school district about $1.8 million per year. The school board unanimously approved the changes during Monday's regular school board meeting. Virtual core classes will be available for high school students who need them for factors such as anxiety, illness, credit recovery, or for other reasons. Associate Superintendent Angela Bemis said, and if needed, students will work with the district to attend supplemental and elective classes through a third-party program known as Edgenuity, Bemis added. School Superintendent Rod Earlywine said the decision to remove the K-8 levels from the virtual school was made based on continued enrollment declines in grades kindergarten through eighth grade. School Board President Dan Greenwell said VIBE enrollment was 63 students in kindergarten through fifth and 75 in sixth through eighth grade. Early Wine said that grade levels were being combined, such as kindergarten and first graders being in the same class. Those numbers just aren't sustainable, Greenwell said. The cost of Vibe Academy totals $2.1 million for the 2022-23 school year, according to a presentation for the board, or to the board. And the projected cost of the Academy is $662,856 for the 2023-24 school year, all-in personnel costs. The Academy employs 19 teachers, two school counselors, one office manager, and one principal. Students can take all classes in the district online, including art, music, and physical education. Now, this new virtual format will have between four and six teachers and a counselor. The principal position was eliminated. All the staff members will still be employed by the school district in different positions and will not suffer pay cuts. And that's a quote from Human Resources Director Jen Gomez. Bemis said that many of the teachers have already chosen new position for the next year. The Vibe Academy staff just moved into their permanent home, which is a space near the Career Academy. The district paid $1.3 million to remodel the space. 
Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief funding was used for the project, and the space was built to be flexible. Greenwell said that it was not a waste to build out the space when it could have been used for future growth or other programs for the students. The district's alternative school for students that are at risk or have been suspended is currently held in a facility leased from the Boys and Girls Home. Bema said the alternative school is currently reliant on independent study and students would benefit from daily teacher interactions. And she said that the change would be a way to enhance the alternative school program. The alternative school cost $531,472 for the 2022-23 school year. The projected cost is $183,777 for the 2023-24 school year. All of that money is in personnel cost. And so the combined schooling would be overseen by the Career Academy principal who already oversees the alternative schooling. The virtual school was approved by the state's Department of Education in February of 2021, and it was going to be advertised in the entire state as a virtual school. The virtual school, again, was uh, approved three years ago. There were 330 students enrolled in the Vibe Academy as of September 23rd. Now that's around a 190 student decrease from the previous year. Because students can enroll at any time, the number of students fluctuates daily. Greenwell said in October the low enrollment is below earlier estimates. With the current low enrollment, we will continue to evaluate how to best deliver online instruction in the future, Greenwell said at the time. At the time, Hurleywine said the district looks constantly at the sustainability and the viability associated with every program offered. Greenwell said there needed to be a review of recent VIBE student achievement results compared to in-person learning achievement results. Numerous national studies have shown substantial learning loss gaps in online classes compared to in-person classes, he said. And the headline for this next article, Appointment is Coming for a Vacant Woodbury County Board Position. And this article was written by reporter Caitlin Yamada. An appointment will soon be made to fill the Woodbury County District 5 Board of Supervisors position, recently vacated by Rocky DeWitt. A committee made up of Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Auditor Pat Gill met recently to decide how to fill the seat uh, vacated by DeWitt, who left to serve as the Iowa Senate District 1 representative. Loomis said that based on the code, the vacancy began in the first of this year. DeWitt submitted his resignation this week, allowing the committee to meet. And by law, the committee can make an appointment within 40 days of the vacancy, or they can also choose to hold a special election. And voters can petition for a special election within 14 days of the publication of the vacancy or appointment. 
Gill made the motion to fill the vacancy by appointment, seconded by Loomis, and the motion passed on a vote of 3-0. to zero. One concern that the committee members did express in the current budget situation for the Board of Supervisors, a special election would not occur in time for the individual to participate in the hearings, and Gill has said that he believes it's important to have a full board budget during these budget deliberations. Previously, eight people had contacted Gill expressing interest in the seat. These names read were Nathan Heilman of Correctionville, Angela Kale of Lawton, John Van Eldick of Lawton, Mark Nelson of Correctionville, Willard Brian McNaughton of Lawton, Barbara Saloniker of Sioux City, Iowa, Janine Beekman of Pearson, and also Charles Clark of Lawton, Iowa. Kale and Clark were identified as having no party affiliation, while the rest were identified as Republicans. Nathan Heilman, John Van Eldick, and Willard Brian McNaughton ran with DeWitt and three others for the same seat in 2016. Now, if the voters do not want an appointment made or do not approve of the individual who is chosen, a petition for a special election can be made, and this petition must be signed by at least 10% of the votes cast in the last general election, which would be at least 2,882. Gill said previously, All voters in Woodbury County can vote for all seats on the board, not just the district that they live in. Gill said a special election would cost around $40,000 to hold. Gill had previously said that he would suggest a special election. He said the Sioux City Community School District previously expressed interest in holding a special election in March for the use of the Advanced Vision for Education Fund. Gill said they recently withdrew that request when informed that they would have to put their recently vacated seat, currently held by Bernie Scalaro, on the ballot. And since the polling places are actually schools, Election Day is a no-day school for students, so students would still have classes during a special election. Gill said parents have contacted him in the past, stating that they do not like having students in the building during these special elections. And the headline for this next article, Looking for a set of grandstands, I-80 Speedway to sell contents at auction. And this uh, story was written by reporter Landon Wirt, a reporter with the Lincoln Journal Star. Those in the market for a towering grandstand, a musco lighting system, or a fully operational concession stand are in luck. Starting on Monday, I-80 Speedway in Greenwood is auctioning off all of its contents. The dirt track ran its last races in October after nearly three decades in operation. Everything must go, says Chris Richard of the Steffs Group, the auction company involved. Things like VIP suites, playground equipment, and yes, even the grandstand are for sale. There are five online rings, and basically the rings are grouped up pretty much by a category of items being offered, Richard said. For example, 
Ring 1 will feature items like the VIP suites, lighting system, and bleachers. Ring 2 features a good portion of the track prep equipment. Ring 3 contains the concrete barriers placed around the track. And Ring 4 will consist of the concession stand equipment, according to Richard. The fifth and final ring will encompass the track's uh, miscellaneous items, like the playground equipment and the sound system as well. And the uniqueness of selling contents of a major, major car racetrack is not lost on Richard, who said that the Steffi's group has never been a part of an auction quite like this. He says, yes, we are selling out the assets of a racetrack, but it doesn't have to go to a racetrack, Richard said. We're finding out that there are other entities, whether it's just regular fairgrounds, softball associations, or baseball associations, that are interested in these very unique items. IAD Speedway owner Steve Kosiski said the demand is high for his Speedway's contents, thanks in large part to the equipment's quality. Kosiski said that they have worked very hard to maintain the facility since they purchased it in 2004 and that the high standard of the racetrack should give potential buyers peace of mind and they'll get good, decent equipment that is high quality. Additionally, he said that he's been pleasantly surprised with all of the interest from outside parties regarding this auction. I did not know what to expect, he says, but with the phone calls I've received and the phone calls the auction company has received, we're happily surprised with the interest, Kosiski says. We just hope that they bid high so we can recoup some of our cost. And Richard said that pretty soon the opening prices for a majority of the items will be low enough for most people to participate. And he hopes for competitive bidding so that items are sold at a fair market price. But there is one catch, though. It is the buyer's responsibility to remove the grandstands or to remove the scoreboard or to remove the lights, Richard said. People have been calling and asking about that, and I told him it is their responsibility for equipment, manpower, and the tools to do so. The I-80 racetrack auction runs through January the 16th, and Kosiski says he will be on hand to assist in the process and to consult with interested parties. Kosiski says that they are confident they'll be able to sell all of the Speedway's assets, but they're prepared for any curveballs that this unique auction could potentially throw. We have a lot of usage for things if we're not able to get rid of it, Kosiski said. But I believe that the interest is very heavy for most everything we have. We are very, very fortunate there, he says. And the headline for this news article, Mother of four-year-old who died after ingesting fentanyl has been charged with negligent child abuse. And this article was written by reporter Mary Ashford of the Omaha World Herald. A young Omaha mother is facing a charge of felony negligent child abuse resulting in death after her four-year-old son died by ingesting a pill that was laced with fentanyl. Paris Hunt, 
21, was taken into custody Saturday in connection with the death of her son, who died last March. According to an affidavit, Hunt called 911 shortly after 4.30 in the afternoon on March the 12th to report that her son was not breathing. She had found him unresponsive next to vomit in his bed before calling for help. Upon arrival, first responders found Hunt crying and visibly hysterical as she performed CPR on the boy. She told officers that there was half a Percocet pill in a bottle on her nightstand that he, he may have gotten into as she could no longer find the pill. The boy was taken to Children's Hospital and Medical Center with CPR in progress. Hospital staff members were able again to regain a pulse, and then he was transferred to the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. Hunt provided permission for officers to search her home, and it is noted in the affidavit that she was completely cooperative throughout the process. In an interview at the hospital, Hunt told officers, that she was using pain pills to help with wisdom tooth pain and that she got the pill from a childhood friend who said it was Percocet. The pill, instead, was actually a counterfeit 30 milligram oxycodone pill. Hudson was declared brain dead on March the 16th. He was taken off life support that evening. A urine drug screen completed upon admission at the hospital did not show any sign of drugs in the boy's system. In his autopsy, however, blood taken at the hospital showed that fentanyl and uh, no fentanyl, a fentanyl analog, was in his system. His cause of death was determined to be fentanyl toxicity. If convicted, Hunt faces up to 21 years in prison. She has not yet appeared in court. And the headline for this next article, Iowa GOP vows more conservative politics and policies. And this article was written by Aaron Murphy, Tom Barton, and Kayla McCullough of the journal's Des Moines Bureau. Emboldened by six years of conservative reforms under their belts and multiple elections that expanded their majorities in the Iowa legislature, Republicans kicked off the 2023 state lawmaking session on Monday by promising more conservative action, particularly on the K-12 education and property taxes issues. The 90th Iowa General Assembly met for the first time at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines. In the coming months, legislators will continue to consider hundreds of proposals to make changes to Iowa state law. Iowa Republicans hold commanding agenda-setting majorities 34 to 16 in the Senate and 64 to 36 in the House. Now, while that margin grew in the November election, this is the seventh consecutive year that Republicans have held complete control of the state lawmaking process by virtue of the Republican majorities in the Iowa legislature with a Republican governor as well. Jack Whitfer, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, used his opening day remarks to highlight many of the conservative law changes of the past six years, including multiple rounds of state tax reductions, 
a dramatic reduction of collective bargaining rights for public workers, changes to the state's election laws and judicial nominating processes, restrictions on legal abortions, and he pointed to the expansion of gun rights. Democratic legislators who, by virtue of being outnumbered, are unable to influence the lawmaking process with their votes, and they made calls for bipartisan work in the legislature, and they called on Republicans to work on legislation that will benefit everybody in Iowa. Zach Walls, the leader of the Senate Democrats from Coralville, said that lawmakers' focus this year should be on Iowa's stagnant population growth and a shortage of workers. It's been called a brain drain and a workforce crisis, Wall says, but really the challenge is bigger than that. What we face is a people crisis, an exodus in the state of Iowa, Wall said. Whether it's growing wait lists for child care, bigger class sizes in our public schools, or the shuttering of labor and delivery units at hospitals across the state, this crisis threatens the future of Iowa and is holding us back every single day. Everything we do this session should be focused on the crisis. Republicans have pledged action on three main topics. One, property taxes, two, funding for K-12 private school students, and three, expanding transparency in K-12 public education for everybody in the state of Iowa. Republicans plan for a third consecutive year to work on legislation that would set aside state funding for private school tuition assistance. Previous attempts were supported by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, and they passed the Senate, but those attempts fell short and were stalled in the House. During her successful 2022 re-election campaign, Reynolds says that she supported challengers to incumbent Republican state lawmakers who did not support the private school tuition assistance bill. Speaking at the Republican Party of Iowa's annual legislative breakfast on Monday morning, Reynolds said that the voters gave Iowa Republicans, quote, a mandate to continue to be bold in pursuing, in pursuing an agenda that puts parents and students first when it comes to their education, that fights back about the liberal woke agenda that's being shoved down our throats in Washington, D.C., and continues to keep our community safe. She called Republicans' dominance of the 2022 state elections a red tsunami that shows that Iowans like the direction the Republicans are taking in this state. And while previous so-called school choice proposals died in the House, Republican Speaker Pat Grassley has been more optimistic about some form of legislation coming this year. He formed a new committee, which he will chair, which is not common for a House Speaker, and that committee will address education policy, including private school tuition and K-12 transparency. And he said that legislation will be House Republicans' top priority this session. Grassley added that while state-funded private school scholarships are an important part of the discussion, we believe that it's just a part of the much broader reforms that we're looking to see, he said.
Other lawmakers said that Republican legislation this year will be crafted with an eye towards expanding freedoms in Iowa, referencing an amendment that Iowans passed which is designed to enshrine gun rights in the state's constitution. We took a message out. We took a message out. We showed Iowans what we're capable of, and we told them what we are going to do and how we're going to govern. And the voters said yes. That is what we want, the Republican spokesman said. The first week of the legislative session is largely ceremonial. The session is scheduled to last until late April, but there is really no hard deadline for it to end. Iowa's sessions often trickle into May and sometimes occasionally into June. And one of the lawmakers' top priorities each year is to craft a new state budget Iowa's state budget year begins on July the 1st. And the headline for this next article, City Council Greenlights Reconfiguration of a Portion of 6th Street to a Three-Lane Roadway. And this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. The Sioux City Council voted on Monday in a split decision to approve a resolution to reconfigure a portion of 6th Street from a four-lane roadway to a three-lane roadway with bike lanes and a trail on each side. Mayor Bob Scott and Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore voted against the resolution. City staff requested the reconfiguration of 6th Street from Lewis Boulevard to Hoven Drive in connection with the 6th Street Bridge redecking project. Staff selected option number one, which consists of matching the existing bridge with three lanes and 10-foot trail on the south side of the bridge, as well as six-foot bike lanes from Chambers Street all the way to Lewis Boulevard. Option number two included widening the bridge, four lanes plus 10-foot trail on the south side of the bridge with no bike lanes. Before the vote, City Engineer Gordon Fair told the council that westbound trucks that are turning north on Hoven Drive are having a hard time making that turn without hitting the median or the corner. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, January the 11th, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and now let's turn to today's obituaries. I'm Eugene Faye Andrews of Moorhead, Iowa, 82, died on Thursday, January the 5th. The Gosler Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Brandy Nicole Bergman of Omaha, Nebraska, formerly of Sioux City, 40 years old, entered into the arms of her Heavenly Father on Sunday, January 1st, 2023, after a short, courageous, and hard-fought battle with cancer. She is survived by her loving husband of 14 years, Jeremy, three daughters, Madeline, Lillian, and Nora, mother, Susan Foster Bowes, sisters, Noel, Lamoureux, Scott, and Marissa Bowes, grandmother, Joyce Foster, father and mother-in-law, Tim and LaDiana Bergman. She is also survived by her sister-in-law, Sarah Drown, and her husband, Dan, 
nieces Harper Lamoureux and Monique Drown, and nephews Carter Lamoureux and Drew Drown. She was preceded in death by her father, Tom Bowes, and sister, Crystal Bowes. Memorials to Family Choice. Gwendolyn E. Gwen Bierman of Kingsley, Iowa, 97, died on Wednesday, January the 4th, rolled funeral home, is in charge of arrangements. Glenna V. Brockhouse of South Sioux City, 84-year-olds, died on Thursday, January the 5th, 2023, Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Willis N. Carver, 68, died on Thursday, January the 5th, 2023. Arrangements are with Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City. John Donlin, 77, of Lamars, Iowa, died on Wednesday, January the 4th, 2023. Rexwinkle Funeral Home and Lamar's Funeral Home are both in charge of arrangements. Linda Marie Gretkin, 75, of Sioux City, Iowa, passed away on January the 4th at a local hospital. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Linda was born on August 5, 1947, in Sioux City, and she was the daughter of Glenn and Yvonne O'Donnell Tucker. She married Francis D. Gretkin on June 7, 1969, in Sioux City, and the couple owned and operated various businesses in the Sioux City area. Francis preceded Linda in death on May 4, 2002. She is survived by her sons Francis, Nikki Gretkin II of Bloomfield, Nebraska, and Randall Gretkin and Kim Watson of Dakota City. She is also survived by granddaughter Samantha Gretkin of South Sioux City, Kristen Gretkin of Boise, Idaho, and Brooklyn Gretkin of Sioux City. She is survived also by great-grandchildren Autumn Sunny Gavin and Luciana, sister Lisa Hagberg Marriott and her husband Dan, and she is also survived by her special friend Larry Besh and daughter-in-law Shelley Gretkin. Linda was preceded in death by her father Glenn Tucker, mother Yvonne Hagberg, stepfather Melvin Hagberg, and two brothers Kirk Tucker and Randall Tucker. Bradley D. Hulquist, 56, of South Sioux City, passed away on Saturday, December the 24th. Service will be held at a later date. Moore and Becker Hunt is handling the arrangements. Brad was born on February the 5th, 1966, in Sioux City to Dennis and Jerry Hultquist. He began his career in 1984 in the United States Army, and he retired in 2008. Brad was on multiple deployments, and he graduated from the French Commando School. He was airborne during his time in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 
Brad is survived by his sister Kimberly Iyer, nieces Natasha, Tabitha, and Sarah Lynn, lifetime family friends Judy Clayton, Donald Clayton, and Chris Akins. He is also survived by Dina McRobert, uh, McRoberts and her children, Nick Broderson, Victoria Mason, Britta Lemon, Erica Broderson, and Lane McRoberts. Special friends Tweedle, Danny G, Nate, Melissa, and all of his other amazing friends at the Huddle and around the world. He was preceded in death by his parents and a brother, Jeffrey Haltquist. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the family for a donation in Bradley's name. Karen Faith Miller Lefevre of Moville, Iowa, 76, passed away on Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at a local hospital. Arrangements are with Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Karen was born September 9, 1946, to Chalmers and Bernice Miller. She was raised on a farm near Mapleton and attended and graduated from Maple Valley in 1965. After graduation, she worked for Mutual of Omaha in the underwriting department in Omaha, Nebraska. In June of 1965, Karen married Don Waterick in Mapleton at St. John's Methodist Church. To this marriage, three children were born, and after 18 years of marriage, the couple divorced. Ken McKeever of Moville, Iowa, 50, passed away on Tuesday, January 23rd, following a long, hard-fought health battle. She was surrounded by her family. Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City is in charge of arrangements. Keen Valerie McKeever was born July 14, 1972, in Sioux City to Raymond and Linda Henke. She loved birds, nature, and hiking. She met Jean McKeever many years ago, and then they lost touch. They became reacquainted one night when Jean worked late and stopped to grab a beverage. Little did he know a blast from the past was waiting there to sweep him off his feet. They married on September 13, 2008, and they added a few fur babies to their family over the years. Snooker, Echo, Junior, Ace, and Skeeter. Keen was a diligent worker, retiring from light forms on August 2016 due to health issues. She was a member of the Audubon Society, the Sioux City Rock and Gem Club, and was a part of the Master Gardeners organization for a time. Ken is survived by her loving husband, Jean, fur babies Ace and Skeeter, her parents' brother, Roger Ahrens, sisters Dawn Hoyt and Deanna Guy, nephews Matthew Cassius and Joseph Ahrens, nieces Amanda Blomenkamp and Andy Guy, great-nephews Adley and Kit Blomenkamp, and in-laws Robert and, M and Colleen McKeever. Lauren C. Neville, 89, of Moville, passed away on January the 4th, 2023 at his home surrounded by his family. Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City is in charge of arrangements.
Lauren was born in Sioux City on December 29, 1933, to Clarence and Lorraine Neville. He was the second of four children and was raised on the farm, first outside of Lawton and later to the home place southeast of Moville. In school, Lauren participated in basketball, baseball, music, class play, class officer, and was active in 4-H, showing cattle all over the Midwest. He graduated from Climbing Hill High School in 1952, and then he was drafted into the U.S. Army, where he served from 1955 to 1957 in Fort Bliss, Texas, with Battery D, 90th Anti-Aircraft Battalion. Lauren is survived by his children, Allen of Aberdeen, South Dakota, Robin of Elfland, North Carolina, and Ryan of Norwalk, Iowa. Seven grandchildren, Alex, Kira, Nick, Tori, Ethan, Izzy, and Ellery. Sister Mary Jacoby and many nieces and nephews. Lauren was preceded in death by his wife Jean, parents Clarence and Lorraine, sister Colita and brother Byron. The family would like to acknowledge his special friend Shirley, his friends at the Movilette coffee shop, his cancer doctors in St. Croix Hospice. Karen Callahan Nold of Conyers, Georgia, formerly of Sioux City, 68, died on December 22, 2022. A celebration of life is pending for later in January. Christy Smith Funeral Homes, Larkin Chapel, on Outer Drive North, is in charge of arrangements. Joanne E. Pruel of Moville, Iowa, 88, died on Saturday, December 17th. Celebration of life January the 14th at 10 a.m. at Gossler Funeral Home Chapel in Anawa, Iowa. A private burial will be held at a later date. Arrangements with Gossler Funeral Home and Monuments of Anawa. James L. Rehm of Westfield, Iowa, 59, died on Thursday, January 25, 2023, Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel is in charge of arrangements. Dorothy A. Sebasta, 88, of Sioux City, Iowa, passed away on December 23rd at a local care center. Services are pending with Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Dorothy was born July the 6th, 1934, in Danbury, Iowa, she was the daughter of Andrew and Leona Shimmer. She graduated from Danbury Catholic High School. While waitressing at the College Cafe, Dorothy met the love of her life, Walter Sebasta. And the couple were married on June 19, 1955 at St. Francis Catholic Church in Sioux City. To this union, four children were born, and Walter preceded Dorothy in death on June 16, 2012. Survivors include her children, Stephen and Walter Sebasta of Spirit Lake, Iowa, Timothy Ray Sebasta of Sioux City, Michael and Dwayne Sebasta of Sioux City, and Nancy Cochran of Sioux City. She is also survived by six grandchildren, 
Dayton Sebasta, Stephanie Bowder, Jack Morris, Sarah Blake, Christopher Sebasta, and Shelby Brooke. Three great-grandchildren, brother Richard Shimmer, and sister-in-law Annie Shimmer. Dorothy was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Walter, brother Don Shimmer, and sister-in-law Lois Shimmer. And now from the Sioux City Journal newspaper, turning to the uh, opinion page of the newspaper. And this first opinion piece is uh, headlined, Iowans entrusted Republicans with the House majority, and we will deliver. And this uh, opinion piece was written and uh, reported on by Randy Feenstra. January 3rd marked the beginning of the 118th Congress in our new Republican majority in the United States House of Representatives. Across our nation, more than 54 million Americans entrusted Republicans with their confidence and their vote. And now they rightfully expect us to deliver conservative victories for our country and our communities. And as I begin my second term representing Iowa's 4th Congressional District, I am committed to solving the major crises facing our nation and getting our country back on track. First, we need to end wasteful spending and balance our federal budget to combat inflation. I believe for too long we have ignored the serious threat our $31 trillion debt poses not only to our economic and national security, but also the well-being of our families and the vitality of our rural main streets. In just the last two years, President Biden and the Democrats added $6 trillion to our federal credit card, leaving Iowa families to pay the bills while prices for gas and groceries have skyrocketed. Knowing the future ramifications of the Democrats' reckless spending agenda, I proudly voted against the Build Back Better Act. That was the act that proposed $3.5 trillion in new spending. Their American Rescue Plan, which failed to rescue our economy from a recession, and their Inflation Reduction Act, which failed to reduce inflation, and their $1.7 trillion government funding package, which contains Congress's sorry tradition of money waste. And as a strong fiscal conservative, I will continue to protect Iowa taxpayers and bring fiscal responsibility back to Washington. Second, we need to write and pass a strong comprehensive farm bill that benefits our farmers, producers, and rural communities who are the breadbasket of the world. And as I conclude, in the 118th Congress, Republicans will deliver on our commitment to America from holding the Biden administration accountable for their disastrous agenda to fighting back against the Chinese Communist Party, our bold vision will ensure that America, all Americans, remain the strongest, most prosperous, and most capable nation on the planet. And as your voice in Congress, I promise that I will continue to advance our shared priorities and Iowa values 
through sound conservative policy that benefits our families, farmers, small businesses, rural main streets, and countries as a whole. And that opinion piece was written by Randy Feenstra. Randy is a Republican and he represents Iowa 4th Congressional District in the United States Congress. <clears throat> and the headline for this next opinion piece is from Craig Stevens. Fusion is a cool science project, but it won't heat our homes. Still decades and hundreds of billions of dollars away. That was the sobering refrain from the recent nuclear fusion announcement that has already taken decades and has cost taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars to get to this point. In the meantime, the Biden administration is thwarting U.S. energy development, and Congress can't even pass bipartisan permitting rules to make energy sitting and transmission more predictable. The nation is suffering from the imperfect storm of gasoline and natural gas costs, the increasing frequency of blackouts and brownouts, and a greater reliance on foreign energy sources. Considering the genuine challenges our nation is facing, the United States should focus its resources on tangible solutions that are available right now. Around the world, more than 2 billion people live in energy poverty, and millions of Americans are struggling to pay for electricity and transportation fuels. Separately, the war in Ukraine has highlighted an over-reliance on Russian natural gas in European countries, a gap that U.S. natural gas could very well help to fill. In fact, the Biden administration has promised more U.S. gas to England and other allied nations despite a history of making it more difficult for U.S. energy companies to extract and transport those resources domestically for us here at home. And not only is the federal government an obstacle, but some political and business leaders such as media mogul and former presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg are underwriting public relations campaigns to end the use of traditional energy sources while they fly on expensive private jets, sail in yachts, and live in mansions. They do not appreciate the struggle for affordable energy, potable water, and good jobs that most citizens of the country and the world seek. The International Energy Administration and the U.S. Energy Information Administration, they do acknowledge and they admit that petroleum and natural gas will be among the most widely needed fuels for at least the next 50 years, likely longer. These are the fuels necessary to drive vehicles, heat homes, and cook food. In addition to leveraging North American petroleum and natural gas supplies, the United States has an opportunity to promote the advancement of traditional renewable energy sources. And to his credit, President Biden has presided over the largest deployment of solar and wind in United States history. Continued investment, coupled with a robust natural gas industry, is the best way to keep our economy strong, 
reduce carbon emissions, and expand our electricity generation capacity. I believe it's important that the United States and its Department of Energy support new and innovative technologies to help us reach a clean energy future, one that nuclear fusion may be a part of. But it all boils down to this. It's critical that we leverage our current resources to meet the energy demands of today, both domestic and global, by allowing U.S. energy companies to develop and transport the traditional energy resources that we have domestically. This will help lower the cost of energy, grow our economy, and support our allies while greening our environment and all without wasting and waiting decades and spending hundreds of billions of dollars more hoping for the best possible result from a cool science project. And briefly turning now to sports. Uh, big news for the Iowa Hawkeyes football team. They are getting a transfer offensive lineman. And this article was written by sports reporter Steve Batterson. An offensive lineman from an NCAA Division II program who had committed to play for Virginia is Iowa's latest find in the transfer portal. The John Parker is a six foot six, three hundred pound offensive tackle, and he announced recently that he plans to join the Hawkeye football program, flipping his initial commitment to the Atlantic Coast Conference. A native of Inkster, Michigan, Parker was a basketball standout who played one season of football at John Glenn High School in Westland, Michigan, before enrolling in Saginaw Valley State. He entered the transfer, por uh, transfer portal in November and initially selected Virginia over offers from such big schools as Washington State, Eastern Michigan. And in news, Northwest Iowa legislators share their priorities for 2023, and this article was written by reporter Jared McNitt. Fourteen of the 16 legislators representing districts in the journal circulation area responded to the newspaper's request for their priorities, and here are some of the answers. Number one, property tax relief. This is from Senator Rocky DeWitt. He says the legislature has stated the intention is to freeze the rates, but the problem with that is it has the potential to hamper counties in their budgeting process. School choice. I believe there are valid points on both sides to change and not change how funding is applied. I know that there will be lengthy committee discussions and I need to withhold judgment until I see a finished product. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, January the 11th, 2023. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. And you know, you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening. <music>